Well, we've taken these seven weeks that uh, is called Easter Tide or Easter Time, and we've been up to something specific. You, you may remember that a, a number of weeks ago, I, I talked about how the church today feels a little bit kind of back on her heels, you might say, you know, just not really kind of sure-footed and understanding her place and culture and, and what it means to be the church in this uh, very post-Christian context that we live in today, and that the church often lacks confidence today. Most of us were not raised in an era in which we were hated or seen as the bad people on the earth. Um, Most of us can remember times when the church was fundamentally respected, and it's a different day, and so it can cause us to lose a bit of our poise, can cause us to lose a bit of our sense of just kind of knowing what to do, how to be a Christian today. And so we we chose this seven weeks to do these kind of God sightings, to learn to be alert, to see where God is working in the world, so that we can have a kind of relaxed, uh, focused, centered, grounded uh, kind of way of being in this world. And you know, all I really have in mind for that for myself and, and for us, if we can get there, is just take someone like Justin and his instrument, or just anybody you know who does something well. You know that a lot's gone underneath that, but when they're just present doing what they're doing, there's a relaxed, focused kind of ability to just be. And that's really what we're shooting for. We're not the first time in history where the church has been hated not the first time in history where the church has been tempted to escape or to kind of create a space that feels unencumbered from the world. And we normally justify it by the pursuit of more holiness. Like if we could just get away from the people who have cooties and if we could just get away from the people who hate us, then somehow we could create in us uh, a higher level of holiness. And if we can't get along or interact well with those who disagree with us, well then at least we can pursue something inside ourselves. And by the time of this writing, by the time of the writing of the Gospel of John, this was already happening in in what is known as sort of the community of John. Now, got to remember, you know, John was sort of the innermost of the innermost circle, you know, laying his head on Jesus's breast at that famous uh, Last Supper. So this was the guy who was arguably the most intimate of Jesus. But by this time, when John's writing this, this community that had gathered around John already was finding themselves having to defend their beliefs and their practices in a hostile world. And when that happens, you can imagine that it's natural to, there's something in us that would want to disengage, maybe to just retreat to bread and wine. Like, can you just hear John and his community? You know, maybe we should just retreat to just being around this table more often and, and remembering what it was like when Jesus was really here. And, and maybe this is the thing that we ought to do. Or maybe we just ought to meet in supportive small groups in our homes and, and then come together, you know, occasionally for bread and wine. I mean, I can just hear them thinking these kinds of thoughts and rationalizing that in the way they are. Well, Jesus, if you look at your gospel reading this morning in this high priestly prayer, as it's often known in John 17, basically raises the issue of, well, should we escape the world? And the answer, of course, is no, that what the church does is join the Father and the Son who are already there. 
See, what's happening underneath this text that we can't see, uh, but we know from history, is that by this time, the disciples were already at risk, that the world already did hate them, and they were living under threats and bullying and abuse. And can't you just picture, I mean, let's, let's be really empathetic with them right this minute. Can't you picture them just being exhausted by it all? Can you picture that? Just being exhausted by it all. Somehow knowing in themselves that they don't belong to the world and that the world doesn't define who they are. But the problem is they're sent into it. I mean, Jesus says, I'm not asking you, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one while they're in the world. And so he says, sanctify them by your truth. Sanctify just means to set them apart for this job that you've given them. For Jesus says, in the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I now confer on them a mission in the world, which just simply means that the church in that sense is patterned after Jesus. And what Jesus wants them to know is something like this, that, look, I cared for you like a sheep cares for, excuse me, like a shepherd cares for sheep. And now his prayer says, I'm entrusting you to my father, the one who cared for me, the one who made me feel safe even in the garden when I'm being arrested the one who gave me poise in my trials, that father who you saw care for me, I'm now entrusting you into his care. I'm sending you into the world, but you're gonna be sent just like I was sent. You're gonna be sent in this father's care. And I think the, all of us who've had kids and can remember when we had little kids and can remember the first time you had to go away somewhere for something and you had to entrust your kids to somebody, Probably it was a grandparent or maybe it was a brother or sister or somebody, but it was somebody you fundamentally trusted, right? Or you're not, you're not entrusting your kids to them while you go away somewhere for a weekend or a week. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus is saying. Look, I'm entrusting you to the same care that I myself have been receiving. And then he says, look, when I've given you God's word, this means that when I'm gone, you're going to know the voice that keeps leading you. You're going to know the tone of it, the values of it. You're going to know this word. And he asks, Father, look at your text. Make them holy. Set them apart. Now, holy here doesn't mean a kind of overpious religiosity. It simply means something like consecrated or set apart for a task. So if you go into your kitchen drawer where all your cooking tools are and you pick the one that you need for the job, you just consecrated that tool. You just set it apart, a knife, a spatula, whatever it is. You, you've picked, of all the things that are there, you picked it, and as you, as you pull it from the drawer, you're consecrating it. You're setting it apart. And this is what Jesus is saying to them, that you are a people who've been set apart. And so he wants them to see that here's the reality. You will have a community, and it will be full of joy. But that community is not to abandon the world. Rather, Jesus says we're to stay in the world under the protective care of this God. So I always think that the person who gets this just right, for, at least for me in my imagination, is uh, the Apostle Paul. You know, 1 Corinthians 9, there's that famous passage that I became all things to all men. I've become every kind of servant there is. And then Paul says, I entered their world. I tried to experience things from their point of view. 
Did you catch that? I entered their world. And I tried to experience these God-haters and church-haters. I tried to experience things from their point of view. But I didn't lose my bearings in Christ, and I did not take on their way of life. And this is the kind of thing that we're called to. So the um, not abandoning Christ, not taking on their way of life, is the whole notion of consecrated. But the entering their world and trying to experience things from their point of view is the notion of sentness. And, and this is the rhythm that's in this prayer of Jesus. Well, our reading in Acts tells us that we now, we sit in this chain of ministry that went from Jesus to the apostles to Matthias and throughout history and up to today. That, you know, it's often commented on this text that no one ever heard of Matthias again. Well, no one ever heard much of the rest of the 12 either. And we can either, I guess, lament that or try to say that these guys weren't very important, or I think there's a, a better way of reading these texts, and that is to say that you are important. That what fueled the New Testament were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who were never named. Thousands of people who were never named. None of us are going down any place in church history, probably. That what, so what, what, what the choosing of Matthias, Matthias teaches us is that it's unknown people who are chosen. There's kind of a well-known story amongst the clergy class of this guy who graduates from Princeton or Yale or something with a Stanford or something with a PhD in theology, works in some sort of denominational church, and the denominational heads send him out to this tiny little country church. Right, you know, in the middle of nowhere in southern Missouri or something. And there's just, you know, a few dozen sort of farmers' families, and he gets to this church and he's just livid. Livid with the, the church hierarchy who couldn't see that he was way too important with his freshly minted PhD in theology to be serving this little country church with a bunch of people who hardly even read. Well, he ends up spending a great deal of time there. And as he spends time there, he finds that he's the one who ends up being remarkably changed by seeing that these average, ordinary people are precisely the people who have always fueled the church. Well, our reading in 1 John alerts us to the notion that the reason we've been able to talk about God sightings here the last few weeks, the reason God can be seen is because he joins us into this sending in the world. And that his testimony, if you look at your passage there, his testimony just sits right in the middle of other human testimonies. And that this models the vulnerability that's inherent in the gospel. That God himself sent his testimony and placed his testimony in the marketplace of ideas. He made it vulnerable. He lets it be judged. Can you imagine that? God sends his only son into the world as his testimony, sets him and this testimony in the marketplace of ideas, and lets it be judged in weakness. Well, of course, this is not altogether surprising because you have Jesus being, you know, born in a manger, abused for most of his life, and then dies this lowly, humiliating death. But this is the genius of the divine witness, that Jesus drinks our water he doesn't walk around with a glass of Perrier or Fuji because, after all, I'm important. 
You know, he's not like a rock star who has a contract that says, when I come to your city, I, I, I would like six bottles of Fuji, please, in my dressing room. No, he drinks our water, gets dirty with our dust. He sleeps without a bed. And I know for me, maybe for you, and I would suppose for this community of John, that we sometimes want him to shout the others down. Like, wouldn't you love it if on the set of, uh, what, I forget what, I don't even know, HBO, that at some point, you know, there would be an electrical arc between two lights and hit Bill Maher on the head, and there goes Bill, right? Wouldn't you just love God to just shout them down? To prove that he's right. Maybe to prove that we're right. Because the one thing you can do in the face of haters is maybe somehow prove to them that you're right, but God doesn't take this tack. It's fascinating. I want you to look at, your, uh, I want you to look at that first John text. He says, my purpose in writing is simply this, that you who believe, this is written to people who already believe, my purpose in writing is that you who believe in God's Son will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. He's hoping that they'll have a fresh assurance, a fresh affirmation, an awakening of a, of a kind of fading faith so that they could go with the Father and the Son into the world. And notice here that the appeal is not to logic or to apologetics. The appeal here isn't even to kind of eyewitness testimony of what they saw and what they heard. The appeal here is very relational. It's almost like, you know, I don't know, somebody who's been dating a long time or a married couple or something, you know, they hear a song and they go, hey, babe, did you hear that? That's our song, you know. Remember, you know, whatever it was, you know, the high school dance, riding in the car for the first time, whatever. Hey, they heard our song. That's what's happening here. This isn't apologetics. This is kind of a refreshing of a lover to his beloved and refreshing them in something more like a song. That this is our story. This is what we're doing together. Remember this, remember how this feels. Remember what's really going on here. Well, I wanna end this morning with asking you to look at Psalm 1. Because what this psalm, you know, being the first of all the psalms, it's setting, it's setting forth essentially God's nature and purpose and how he relates to us and how we're to relate to him. But it, it tells us that all this requires a choice. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Now notice there's a radical contrast, if you keep reading in the psalm there, between the righteous and the wicked. This isn't about morals. This is something more about what's the basic orienting part of your life. What's the basic center of your life? This isn't about mere keeping of little moralistic laws. Is it a trust in God and his kingdom? Or the psalmist might say, are we, are you the kind of person who becomes a law unto oneself? 
But this now brings us back full circle to where we started with the church kind of feeling back on her heels. Because this is a tough idea to sell in our world in which most things are ambiguous and gray. You don't think so? Take a drive down the 405 to Cal State Long Beach sometime and sit in a freshman class in philosophy and ask the question, what is wicked? And see if you get any kind of concrete answer. Ask the question, what is good? And you'll end up in a two-hour conversation of what's the, the ness and goodness. What's the essential of goodness? There is no agreement on these things, and this is what makes it difficult for us in our world today. Yet the psalmist tells us that there really are direct results of where we walk and sit and stand and says that happiness and blessedness is found in Torah. Now, I've said before, but it bears repeating, Torah does not mean law. Torah does not mean take a break on the seventh day or I'm going to beat the heck out of you. You know, you're going to pay a, you're going to pay a, a heavenly traffic fine if you don't slow down on the Sabbath. That's not what it means. Torah really means something like instruction. It means the totality of everything that God has done and said and is in the way of shaping a people. And that what you do about that really does make a big difference. So you know what? I guess even if we didn't believe in heaven and hell, wouldn't we want the people we care about to at least have the kind of life that God offers? And we can't do that if we're not somehow engaged with people and, and entering into a conversation with them and, and just being who we are and, and just having some sort of concourse, some sort of relationship with them. And if you take it to its ultimate end, of course, you know, you've got something even more drastic. But what if it really is true that where someone walks and sits and stands actually makes a difference? What if that isn't just some sort of ancient religious idea? And now we're again sort of back full circle because we are living in a time when what we think is not assumed to be correct. What we think is assumed to be oppressive. And it, and it kind of holds people down from fully expressing themselves. You know, there's, an, there's, a, there's this insistence that I want to sit where I want to sit and don't mess with me. And I want to stand where I want to stand. Don't judge. And I want to walk where I want to walk. And I want you to be okay with that. And this is the place that we're in today. And I think that for us, where this has to really start is for us learning to listen. Not so much to have an argument to share. God doesn't even argue with them. He sort of reminds them of, of a song that they've been singing together. And so I think it goes, I think it goes to things like this. When, when I find myself not knowing what to say, I always have this one sort of fail-safe place I can go, and that is to say to somebody, well, if it were up to you, would you like there to be a God? If it were up to you, would you like there to be such a thing as a, of a divine being? And it doesn't matter how they answer that, you're going to get their prejudices, their, you know, their biases, whatever they've got going on in their head is going to come out. 
And then we can ask, well, if, okay, if you would like there to be a divine being, would you like that being to fully express who they are? Would that be a good thing in your mind if this divine being fully expressed who they are? Well, yes. Well, what if that expression of that divine being starts impinging on where you want to sit and walk and stand? Are you okay with that? And see, you can just sort of, we can just get into those kinds of, of conversations that helps people see what's really going on. So this summer, we're going to sit uh, with the Apostle Paul. Next week's Pentecost, and we, of course, will celebrate Pentecost and pray for one another for the reception of the Spirit. And then we're going to spend the summer sitting with Paul and how Paul worked this out with the people of Ephesus and how he dealt with people who had all kinds of contrasting ideas and see if we can learn to be in conversation with our culture as well. But for now, this morning, as we bring to a close this work we've been doing on God sightings, um, maybe you could just sit back as we're about to have a moment of reflection and, and uh, maybe close your eyes and just hear this little brief summary of what we've been up to and what we're up to in these passages. That God has sent us and he will protect and guide us. And that we stand in the unbroken chain of Matthias. And when we feel far off and alone, God will call us back with a song and plant us like a tree by a river, constantly nourished by his spirit in good soil and bearing good fruit. Amen.